I now can sing since I've been redeemed. I'm on the everlasting, everlasting rock. I faith in Christ, my Redeemer King. I'm on the everlasting, everlasting rock. This is the voice of hope. O love surpassing knowledge, O grace so full and free, I know that Jesus saves me, and that's enough for me, and that's enough for me, oh that's enough for me, I know that Jesus saves me, and that's enough for me. Oh, wonderful salvation, from sin he makes me free. I feel the sweet assurance, and that's enough for me. And that's enough for me. Oh, that's enough for me. Sweet assurance, and that's enough for me. Thank you, men. Have you experienced the love of Christ so precious poured out on Calvary? Are his love and his cleansing power enough for you? Are you walking daily in fellowship with God through his Son, Jesus Christ? If not, I'm delighted to tell you, you can become his child today, right now. This program, The Voice of Hope, is produced by Heralds of Hope. We're an international media ministry sharing the gospel around the world in English and 25 other languages. We use all forms of media, radio, internet, social media, and print to share the good news of Jesus Christ with people all over the world. And all of this is made possible by the prayers and financial support of people just like you. To learn more about the ministry or how you can help be a part of it, visit our website heraldsofhope.org. That's heraldsofhope.org. I'm J. Mark Horst, the Bible teacher on The Voice of Hope, and I welcome you to stay with me as we continue our study in the Gospel of Mark. To prepare for my teaching, I encourage you to get your Bible in hand or open the app on your phone so you can follow along with me as I read our text in a few minutes. 
In this episode of our study from Mark's Gospel, we'll be looking at Mark chapter 2 and verses 23 to 28. The subject is the Lord of the Sabbath. Lord Shaftesbury was a member of Parliament in London in the late 1700s. He was a devout follower of Christ, and he was also a tireless advocate for the poor and the mentally ill. And because he worked so closely with the poor, he was well-respected among them. And some of his interactions generated some unique insights that he was able to use to improve their quality of life. In one instance, the London fruit and vegetable peddlers told Lord Shaftesbury that their donkeys, if they were rested one day in seven, could carry their loads 30 miles every day. But if those same peddlers worked their donkeys seven days a week, then those same donkeys could only travel half the distance, only 15 miles a day. The livelihood of these peddlers, of course, depended on their animals, and they discovered that they lost 75 miles of travel each week if they worked a donkey every day. But not only that, they often also had a sick and shabby-looking donkey. But if they used their donkey just six days per week, they gained almost 4,000 miles of travel in a year, and the benefit was they had a sleek and a nice-looking donkey. So the question is, do donkeys benefit from the Ten Commandments? Well, listen to Deuteronomy 5.14. The seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. God made both men and donkeys, and he knew what was good for them, and he put both of them into the commandments. You know, an unbeliever who ignores God's law doesn't know enough to run a donkey without killing it. In Paris, France, during the life of Lord Shaftesbury, there was no Sabbath observance. Incidentally, it was the time of the French Revolution, and there were more suicides in proportion to the population than in any other city in the Christian world. So in our continuing study of Mark's Gospel, we're moving into the end of chapter 2. And we've learned that the common people flock to hear Jesus' teaching and to experience his healing, and also that the Pharisees began to openly oppose him. The analogies that we looked at the last time were an indication of the growing differences between Jesus and the Pharisees, because his teaching, when compared with the traditional Jewish belief, was like a new garment that will replace an old one or like new wine that will burst old wineskins. And at the end of this chapter, rather than try to placate the opposition, Jesus seems to throw down the gauntlet, as we say. He confronts them with the statement that he is the one who is qualified to decide what constitutes keeping the Sabbath, and not them, not the Pharisees. Several words from his statement become the title of our study, The Lord of the Sabbath. And our text is Mark chapter 2, verse 23, and through chapter 3, verse 6. Now, these are two separate episodes, but they are connected. And uh, we will look at the first one this time, and then we will look at the opening verses of chapter 3 in our next time together. Now it happened that he went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, Look, Why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? But he said to them, 
Have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry, he and those with him? How he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar the high priest, and ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat except for the priests, and also gave some to those who were with him? And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. So as we reflect on the words, Lord of the Sabbath, we learn several things immediately. First of all, the word Lord establishes authority. And the word Sabbath establishes the sphere, or we might say the area, in which he exercises that authority as the Lord. And so as we study, we want to see how Jesus, in his position of authority, understood and defined for us the original intent of the Sabbath. And in this text, chapter 2, the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, Jesus supports his claim to the lordship of the Sabbath by posing two arguments, one from scriptural precedent and one from human predicament. And we'll look at the one from scriptural precedent on this program today. So let's begin. The scene that Mark creates for us in the opening verses of our text must have been quite common at the time. Because according to Deuteronomy chapter 23 and verse 25, if you were walking by a grain field or an olive grove or a vineyard, you could pick and eat what you needed to satisfy your hunger. The only prohibition was you couldn't put any in a basket or a container to carry it home. So picture Jesus and his disciples walking beside a field of standing grain. And as they're walking, the disciples reach out and they strip the heads of grain from the stalk they rub the kernels together in their hands to remove the outer husks. I remember doing that on the small farm where I spent my childhood. You can strip the head off the stalk of wheat or barley in one smooth operation, and then you just rub the kernels together in your hand to remove the husks. You blow on it gently, and those husks float away, and you have a ready-made snack. Now, I agree it's not very tasty, but it is nutritious. So what the disciples were doing was satisfying their hunger. And the Pharisees immediately accused them of doing something that wasn't lawful on the Sabbath. How so? Well, to the Pharisees, there were three simultaneous violations of the law. The disciples were reaping, they were threshing, and they were preparing food. You see, the Pharisees had come up with 39 specific kinds of activities that were prohibited on the Sabbath. To me, the simple act of walking took more work than the process of eating a few kernels of grain. And of course, the Pharisees had figured out just how far you were permitted to walk on the Sabbath too. So who said that the actions of the disciples violated the law? According to our text, it was the Pharisees. They saw themselves as the final arbiters of the law. But Jesus has something to say about that. Now, before I look at Jesus' response, let me say just a bit about the Pharisees. First, while Jesus was often sharply critical of them, he also realized that theirs was a sincere attempt to obey the law. And if that weren't the case, then why did Jesus say things like this? The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. All therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do. But do not after their works, for they say and do not. That's Matthew 23, 2 and 3. And then the Jewish historian Josephus tells us that in the time of Jesus, the Pharisees comprised only about 5% of the nation, and there were about 6,000 full-fledged members of the group 
called Pharisees. They were regarded by the public as the most accurate interpreters of the law, and they were held in such esteem that all the Jewish prayers and religious services were brought into conformity with what the Pharisees taught. And even the Sadducees made some concessions to the practices that the Pharisees outlined. So Jesus didn't fault them for their study and their application of the law. What he did fault them for was giving their interpretations equal weight with the Scripture. In fact, at one point, Jesus said to them, and this is Mark chapter 7, verse 9, we'll get to this later in our study, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. So, because Jesus and his disciples didn't keep the law exactly the way the Pharisees thought it should be kept, they said they were guilty of violating the law. And then Jesus responded by appealing to the scriptures, and that was our first point, his argument from scriptural precedent. And here again, two things stand out. First of all, God's word is authoritative. It gives direction for living. And second, the Pharisees accepted and studied the complete Old Testament. The Sadducees didn't do that. They just studied the Torah. So the Pharisees should have been familiar with the fact that in some cases, personal need preempts the law. Jesus takes them back to the experience of David in 1 Samuel chapter 21. Perhaps you recall the story. David was fleeing from Saul. He came to the town of Nob. This was the location of the tabernacle during the reign of Saul. David was hungry, and so he asked Ahimelech the priest for five loaves of bread or whatever was available, because David had a group of men with him. And Ahimelech told him the only thing he had on hand was the showbread, the hallowed bread, or what is sometimes called the bread of the presence. Now, interestingly, Mark says it was when Abiathar was the high priest. Luke says, Ahimelech gave the bread. Is this a contradiction? Ahimelech was the father of Abiathar. And after Doeg, the Edomite, slaughtered all the priests at Nob, Abiathar was the only one left, and he became the high priest. So it would be a little bit like saying King David was born in Bethlehem. Well, obviously David wasn't king when he was born, but it's a common way of speaking. We do it all the time. So, there's no contradiction here. Now, back to the bread of the presence. It was 12 loaves, one loaf for each tribe of Israel. And you know something? These loaves were not little. Each one was made from two-tenths of an ephah, or that's about four liters or a gallon of flour. Jewish sources tell us that each loaf weighed about five kilos, or 11 pounds. The bread was a symbol of God's desire for fellowship and communion with His people. And so those loaves were placed on a golden table in the holy place of the tabernacle, and they remained there for seven days, for one week. Now, it had to be on leavened bread, or it would have spoiled in that amount of time. It would have gotten moldy. Then those loaves were removed, and fresh ones were put in their place. So this bread of the presence that had reached its expiration date was the only bread that Ahimelech had on hand when David showed up. And that hallowed bread, according to Leviticus 24, verse 9, was to be eaten by the priests. Now, Leviticus doesn't specifically state that this bread was forbidden to others, but Jesus says it was for the priests alone. So what is he getting at? What is Jesus trying to communicate here? First of all, there does seem to be a bit of a dig at the Pharisees or a rebuke by Jesus. 
Most of our English translations don't communicate it very well. The closest we can come is something like this. Have you not read even this? A little bit of sarcasm, maybe. After all, these men were scholars, and they had a high regard for the Hebrew Scriptures. They should have been familiar with what happened in that situation with David and the high priest. Jesus makes it clear by this illustration that human need trumps the letter of the law. Now, that statement can be taken by some as a license to do whatever they want, but that violates the spirit of what Jesus is teaching. The key is human need. This illustration isn't about convenience or comfort. It's about need. Today, within Christendom, there's considerable debate about how this principle of one day in seven should be observed, Sabbath or Sunday, or if it should be observed at all. Those who argue for a Saturday observance point back to Genesis chapter 2 and verses 2 and 3. These verses record how God rested on the seventh day of creation and set that day apart as a day of rest. I believe they make a valid point. Our brothers and sisters in the country of Nepal worship on Saturday, but they do it for a very pragmatic reason. It's the day when the government offices and businesses are closed. And then there are those who advocate for a Sunday observance, and they point to the resurrection of Christ and the fact that the early church met for times of worship and fellowship on the first day of the week. Acts chapter 20, verse 7, and 1 Corinthians chapter 16, and verse 2. And I believe they too have valid points to support their practice. And then there's another group of people that says there's no need for any one day of the week to be set aside as a worship day. They argue that every day should be a day of worship, and there's truth to that. But they point out that the observance of the Sabbath and the feast days were only a shadow of the things to come. And so when Jesus died and rose again and ascended to heaven, those shadows and types that were contained in the law were all fulfilled. So now, no one particular day of the week is more holy than the others. And they quote Galatians chapter 4, verse 10, and similar verses. And again, I believe their argument has some valid points too. So what do we make of these different ideas and of Jesus' teaching? Well, one thing seems clear to me immediately. Don't reject out of hand those who see things differently than you do. At the same time, let's remember that there are biblical commands like those in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23 to 25. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised, and let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more, as you see the day approaching. So I believe that those who use the argument that no particular day is to be set aside for worship and fellowship and inspiration are at the greatest risk of becoming self-absorbed in their business and in their pleasure. I believe there's something valuable about structure and discipline in our lives. But then there's also the risk of becoming what we might call a Sunday Christian. In other words, you go to church, you observe the day of rest, but the rest of the week, those who don't know that you went to a Sunday service could never tell that you were a follower of Christ. So in reality, this whole issue becomes a matter of what's in your heart. And what's in your heart will affect the way you live. It will come out in your actions. You know, one of the blessings of my childhood was my parents' view of the importance of regular worship and fellowship with other believers. 
They had a very simple guiding principle. When there was a service at our church, we were there. And that wasn't always convenient, but to them it was a commitment. I never felt like my parents made that commitment so that they would look good in the eyes of other people or they would appear as being more spiritual than others. They simply made a good faith attempt to live out biblical principles in a practical way. As a result of their commitment, certain activities were off-limits to us on Sunday. Now, I didn't necessarily agree with them in all of those areas, and I still don't. But I see great value in keeping one day a week as a special day unto the Lord. But that special day should be a blessing, not a burden. I remember, in the aftermath of Hurricane Agnes way back in 1972, going to a nearby town on a Sunday afternoon to help with the cleanup in the aftermath of that massive storm. It was hard, dirty, exhausting work, shoveling several feet of mud and muck out of basements. And yet we worked that Sunday as an expression of our love for the Lord and for our neighbors. And I believe that is, at least in part, what Jesus was trying to teach the Pharisees and us here. Their rigid enforcement of rules and regulations turned what should have been a delight, the Sabbath, into a drudgery, not only for them, but for those who looked up to them as spiritual guides. If only the Pharisees had truly understood the words of Isaiah 58, they would have known that God intended the Sabbath to be a time of great joy, a time of blessing, a time of rich fellowship. And if you read Isaiah 58, you'll notice that the focus is first on God and then on blessing others. It's not about doing what you want to do on the Sabbath or on the Lord's Day or the Day of Rest. There are many professing Christians today who see God's commands as drudgery. They think God's out to spoil their fun or maybe make their lives monotonous. And they feel this way. Why? Because they focus on themselves and what they want, what they enjoy. But Jesus said that true joy in life comes by learning to serve others. As God in the flesh, Jesus perfectly understood the needs of his followers. He still understands them today. And so he said to the Pharisees, I'm the master of the Sabbath. I helped write these laws, and I will show you how to interpret them. Here we have the living word appealing to a precedent in the written word to establish his authority to interpret the law. And then the second argument Jesus presented to demonstrate that he is Lord of the Sabbath was his argument from human predicament. But that will have to wait till our next visit. Guide me, O thou great Jehovah, pilgrim through this barren land. I am weak, but thou art mighty. Hold me with thy powerful hand. Bread of heaven, bread of heaven, feed me till I want no Still my 
strength and shield. When I tread the verge of Jordan, bid my anxious fears subside. Bear me through the swelling current, land me safe on Canaan's side. Songs of praises, songs of praises, I will ever give to thee, give to thee. Is Jesus your guide in life? Are you asking him to show you how to live out his commands faithfully? As the men sang, we need Jesus to walk with us through this life, because we can't see beyond the next step. But he has promised to guide us, and something that gives me great comfort is, he knows the way. Now, if you'd like to review today's teaching or share it with someone, you may request a copy. It's available either in print or as a digital audio file. Just ask for it by its title, Lord of the Sabbath. Now, the easiest way for you to connect with us is by using our email address, hope at heraldsofhope.org. Or you can call us toll-free at 866-960-0292. Or mail your request to The Voice of Hope, Box 3, Breezewood, Pennsylvania, 15533. You can also review today's teaching or listen to archived programs by logging on to our website, heraldsofhope.org. If you'd like to help this ministry financially, you can send a check by mail, or you can donate securely online at our website, heraldsofhope.org, or you can call our toll-free number, 866-960-0292 and donate by credit or debit card. It is God's grace, accompanied by your fervent prayers and your generous financial support, that will enable the voice of hope to be on the air until Jesus comes in the air. Now don't forget to join me next week for the voice of hope and the second part of my teaching, Lord of the Sabbath. And then, Lord willing, on the weekend of February 18th, I'll have that interview I promised you about Bible distribution in Africa. You won't want to miss it, so make sure you tune in. And until we meet again, Oh, when shall I see Jesus and reign with him above, and shall hear the trumpet sound in that morning? And from the flowing fountain drink and shall hear the trumpet sound in that morning. Oh, shout glory, for I shall mount above the skies when I hear the trumpet sound in that morning. Oh, shout glory, for I shall mount above the skies when I hear the trumpet sound. Yeah.
and you'll hear his trumpet sound in that morning. Oh, shout glory, for I shall mount above the skies when I hear the trumpet sound in that morning. Arise, shall then with rapture the Savior's face behold, and we'll hear the trumpet sound Oh!